the La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune. Dark Lacrosse is a suite of programs that feature the seedier side of lacrosse history and also include a downtown walking tour, a trolley tour, and an annual stage production with new content each year. On the corner of King and Front Streets in 1899, a young man by the name of William Kerr was fatally stabbed nine times, resulting in the most sensational trial in the history of lacrosse. It was a Sunday night, July 30th, 1899. William Kerr and a companion named Teddy Galster were enjoying the maze of taverns that dotted the lacrosse waterfront. They had just left the notorious Blue Front Saloon. This place was full of villainous characters, rough and brawling rivermen, Gamblers, hustlers, pickpockets, prostitutes, and politicians. It was owned by city alderman Henry Lexius, and it was here he would hold court with his constituents. It was believed that more city business was settled here than in City Hall itself. Kerr and Galster were walking north on Front Street. Three men approached, traveling south. They were complete strangers to one another, but as words were exchanged, the confrontation heated. John C. Miller, one of the gang of three, pulled a knife and stabbed William Kerr repeatedly. With nine bleeding knife wounds, Kerr managed to walk four blocks before collapsing. Doctors and policemen were notified. Moments after the scuffle, witnesses reported seeing Miller and his companions washing off Kerr's blood at a fire hydrant at 2nd and Pearl. Then they proceeded to enjoy the rest of the evening. They visited several more saloons that night, often bragging about the confrontation earlier. When the police caught up with the men, it was apparent they would not go peacefully. Miller pulled out the same blade that killed Kerr and attempted to stab the arresting officer. Miller was eventually subdued, but ranted that he would kill every city official in town from the mayor on down. Miller and his companions were charged with murder. To the citizens of La Crosse, it was an open and shut case. But John Miller was the son of August Miller, a prominent business owner and respected pillar of the community. August Miller also served on the Board of Trade and as an alderman of the 14th Ward, all of which made him a very important man in lacrosse. The biggest trial in lacrosse history started the following year on January 26, 1900. District Attorney Tom Morris prepared his prosecution for five months. His opening statement lasted nearly seven hours. All of the accused men had separate lawyers. Miller's companions contested that they were merely uninvolved witnesses. Miller's attorney argued self-defense. He pointed out Miller's cracked jaw as evidence of a physical assault. After the trial, most people believed his cracked jaw was the result of his resisting arrest and not from his altercation with William Kerr. That, however, was never presented in court. During the long trial, Miller's attorney attacked the moral character of the material witnesses to the crime, prostitutes. The witnesses to the crime were in the employ of a house of ill fame called the Bullpen. The chief witness for the prosecution was the madam of the Bullpen, Hazel Winter. Hazel and her prostitutes were treated disgracefully on the stand, Miller's defense attorney even asked the jury if Hazel Winter's face was the most fiendish and repulsive thing they had ever laid eyes on. There was an objection. It was sustained. <laughs> Can you believe that? That lawyer treating me like that? Me, Hazel Winter. Let me tell you something, darlings. I've been running body houses for a lot of years, doing business with the most nefarious of men, and I have never been treated so despicably in my entire life. 
That's right, sugars. I ran body houses in Memphis and in New Orleans. I moved up here to lacrosse about five years ago to uh, share the love, as they say. And I have always been good and fair to my girls and to my customers. So for a lawyer, a lawyer to question my moral character? <laughs> Darlings, we are practically in the same business. The only difference is when I get done screwing my customers, they feel good about it. I seen John C. Miller kill that poor boy in cold blood. He was crazier than a peach orchard hog that night, carrying on like he was possessed by the furies he was. That boy, that boy should have been locked up for life. <laughs> but his daddy is a bigwig in town. His daddy knows all the important people. So, when it came time for the verdict on first-degree murder, not guilty. Them other two were acquitted outright. John C. Miller, second-degree manslaughter. Second-degree manslaughter. Can y'all believe that? Let me tell you, no one could. It was terrible how that boy got off. <sighs> My friend Mabel... She said that I should go down and visit the city officials and lodge a complaint. I said I would. <laughs> but I don't have to go down and visit them. They come and visit me all the time. And yet, the word of working women in lacrosse was not enough to prosecute a member of a respected lacrosse family for murder. Women, and certainly prostitutes, held very little power and influence at that time in history. After the trial, the two acquitted men went into a saloon to celebrate. The bartender refused to serve them. The whole town was shocked and disgusted by the injustice. John Miller did go to prison, though. He spent six and a half years doing hard labor in Waupon State Prison. Later, he became a farmer in Fairchild, Wisconsin, dying in 1943. And now I'd like to welcome in Bill Peterson, former archives librarian who recently retired after 34 years of service, who did some of the initial research for this story. This is one of the first dark lacrosse stories. The original concept of dark lacrosse was to present true stories on a walking tour that could be connected to a specific place, usually a building, in the central part of downtown lacrosse. While the dark lacrosse suite of programs has moved beyond downtown now, we were still limited to the downtown core in that first year. This particular story was the grand finale of the original dark lacrosse walking tour and was unique in that it wasn't associated with a particular building, or at least a building that had existed at one time. It encompassed more of an area, that being the boisterous and bawdy lower downtown riverfront at the very end of the 19th century. This area was comprised of warehouses, saloons, houses of ill fame, and riverboat loading docks. In fact, William Kerr, the murder victim, worked as a deckhand on a river, riverboat called the Lion. He was probably typical of the clientele that frequented this area at night. Young, male, employed in a low-skill, low-paying, and highly labor-intensive job with little in the way of permanent routes anywhere. Now, during this time period, there was more than one newspaper in the city of La Crosse, and they covered this murder case like the proverbial blanket. The La Crosse Chronicle 
and especially the Lacrosse Daily Press, reported on this story with such detail, zeal, and sensationalism, it would have made today's social media environment blush. The newspapers didn't just provide summations of the events in court that day, but blow by blow, individual question and answer sessions between attorneys and witnesses. Even the names of prospective jurors and the questions they were asked, along with their answers, was covered in detail. A legal student could easily write a thesis on turn-of-the-century trial procedures by reading these articles, and a mass media student could probably do the same on media coverage of the time. The first article from the La Crosse Chronicle was especially interesting, with a headline announcing a fatal stabbing in the city's Tenderloin district. And then, at the end of the article, was a paragraph or two about the condition of the victim who happened to still be alive. Whether this was an indictment of the poor medical care that was available at the time, or a comment on the severity of the victim's wounds, or both, one hopes that poor Mr. Kerr didn't get a chance to read the paper to see that he'd already been declared dead by the press. At any rate, the court seemed to agree with the newspaper's assessment as the four alleged assailants were charged with murder before Kerr actually died. Unusual to say the least. A total of 156 prospective jurors had to be brought in from all around the county before 12 men could be found whose opinions had, been, had not been contaminated by the newspaper coverage about the murder. Some jurors were also eliminated when asked about which church they attended, the idea being among the attorneys that some religious beliefs would not allow an intoxicated man to be judged fairly. Being illiterate, or at least not being able to speak much English, did not enhance a man's chances for selection either. Finally, in a seemingly unrelated note, the research into this story provided a rare glimpse into a very human side of local history in La Crosse that has been all but lost, that being an actual name of a tavern in pre-prohibition downtown La Crosse. This was the Blue Front Tavern on Front Street, mentioned in some of the newspaper articles about the murder. In the older La Crosse City directories, especially prior to Prohibition, taverns were listed only by the owner's name, not the actual business name. Certainly these owners must have had names for their drinking establishments to make them stand out from the crowd. I wonder what some of these names could have been. The Mermaid, The Bucket of Blood, The Drunken Catfish. We may never know, but imagine the fun a novel writer would have making up a name for a La Crosse Riverfront Tavern set on a murderous foggy night in 1899. Thank you for listening.